Our scripture reading this morning is Daniel 2, 1 through 24. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked any such thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to, David, uh, to Daniel and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might know, <clears throat> show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of ba Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks 
and praise. For you have given me wisdom and insight and might and have now made known to me what we ask of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said to him thus, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. This is God's word. Here's the big picture. In 1446 BC, God rescued Israel from bondage in Egypt and led his people to the promised land. After 400 years, God gave them a king by the name of Saul. David, then Solomon, followed Saul and led a united kingdom that lasted 120 years. When Solomon died, his son's bad judgment split the kingdom in two. The northern kingdom, called Israel, moved steadily away from God and reaped judgment in 722 BC. The southern kingdom, called Judah, had some good kings along with some bad, but the general trend was away from God. The southern kingdom was judged in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king, utterly destroyed Jerusalem and took a remnant into exile. Our first glimpse of Daniel is in 605 BC, almost 20 years before the fall of Jerusalem. Daniel was taken to Babylon where God used him in amazing ways for almost 70 years. The book that bears his name tells us about how he stayed true to God in a hostile world. And it gives us a glimpse of spiritual challenges we will face in the future. We can learn from Daniel's example and Daniel's prophecy how to stay true to God no matter what. Today we remember September 11. And it seems like it's hard to forget the insanity in Memphis. Psalm 56, that's a verse, I I love this verse, uh, 56, 8 and 9. It says, you have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. There's two things to take from that passage that I think are an important truth counterweight to the things going on around us. One is it says, he puts our tears in a bottle. They're precious to us and they're written in a book. He actually counts them. He's very aware of the sorrow and the sadness that washes over us. But then there's this other thing that David says that I love. He says, this I know, this is my bedrock. This is my compass. God is for me. And if God is for us, who can be against us? That's our reference point as we work our way through the season that we are in right now. Well, Daniel chapter 2. This is to me one of the most remarkable chapters in the book, in the entire Bible, because of this incredible quality that I see in this middle schooler who is Daniel. To get a sense of why that's not just uh, something to think about, but something we need, I want you to understand some things that Jesus said. For example, in 1 first, uh, in first John 3.13, one of the apostles says this, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. 
And he's really reflecting what Jesus said as recorded in the Upper Room Discourse. We looked at this passage almost a year ago. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. There may be exceptions and moments when the animosity of the world is scaled back, but the norm, the default position, according to Jesus, is for the world to hate followers of Jesus. Which means that the temptation toward compromise is strong. Oh, I don't want to make it so obvious. Maybe they won't turn on me. How will you, under, how will you respond under the pressure? It's coming. How will you do when it could cost you your life to name the name of Jesus? Now, that is not just a, a kind of a theoretical question. I think that's a very real question. We are moving to a time when it is going to be very costly and where we need to be people who are capable of standing true for the Lord no matter what. Daniel actually predicts our future. I showed you this verse last week, but we'll look at it once again. In Daniel 11.32, and this is in a section in Daniel where he's actually talking about the season that we are in and moving into. And he says, and by smooth words... He will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. Get this. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. The people who know their God are a force to be reckoned with when the heat is on. Daniel 2 actually gives us a case study in how to handle pressure. Uh, in chapter 2, waves of fear and frustration are washing over the heads of the Babylonians. One head stays cool, that's Daniel, while the rest are freaking out. It's a textbook case study of how God's people can keep their cool when the heat is on because of what they know of the name of God. That's what you're going to see in Daniel. Daniel knows the name of God. Now, what do you, what do you mean by that? Knowing the name of God does not just mean we know the terms that we use to designate him. For example, God, Father. To know the name of God is actually shorthand for three things. It means to understand the character of God. Who is he? What is he like? It means to be able to affirm what he's said and done. To know the name of God is to be able to say, here are the things that he has done. Here are the things that he has said. And number three, to know the name of God means to live accordingly. Uh, for example, in Jeremiah, you know, he talks about do this, do this, do this. Is that not what it means to know the name of God? Daniel is going to respond to a situation in a way that affirms specific aspects of God's character. He knows the name of God. He knows what he does and what he says. And that's why he prevails. When we ask God for something in the name of Jesus, we're saying, I'm asking you to do this because of who you are, because of what you have said and what you have done. 
So what we're going to see in this passage are three reactions to a crisis. Uh, we're going to first see the madness of a monarch. Then we're going to see the soothsayers with no sooth. Uh, sooth is shorthand for truth. They were called soothsayers because they were truthsayers. But in this case, the soothsayers have no sooth. Say that fast. And then Daniel, who knows God's name, is the man with a plan. So first, let's look at the madness of the monarch, all right? What do we know about Neb? We know Neb was a noob. It says in verse 1, now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, he's only been king for two years. So he's just starting out this process. And, by the way, this was not a very good year. In 604 B.C., one of his uh, empires and the capital city that was a part of his kingdom rebelled against him. And so he ended up having to flatten the city and reduce, reduced it to rubble. In 603 B.C., he's involved with a large army, siege works, heavy equipment, troops in the field for months. And so he's back in Babylon in year two, but it's been a rough couple years. By the way, at this time, Daniel would be a sophomore at the King's College. Uh, so I don't know how old he is, but, you know, if he came to Babylon when he was 16... Not unlikely. He was about 18 or so when he's doing this. So my takeaway from that is, wow, look what a middle schooler, look what a high schooler can do when they know the name of God. He's got a fuzzy memory. This may not be a shrewd validation technique. It may not be the case. In fact, there's a certain word in the text that suggests to me that he actually doesn't remember the dream. Uh, he's not just doing this as a, hey, I'm going to see if these guys are fakes or not. He's, he's struggling with remembering the dream. Have you ever had a dream like that where you can't remember all the details but you wake up kind of freaked out? I had one of those. This was a long time ago. Uh, I had this dream that, uh, now this is when our family, we just had one small son. This would be during the time I was here. So this was a dream from my first of Ann days. I don't know if it was a nightmare caused by you, but at any rate, uh, we, were, we were living, uh, I don't know why, but we were living in a van, a cargo van, and some guys, some thieves with thick necks had come into the, to the van and were trying to steal my stamps, and I was choking them. <laughs> what is wrong with you, Jim? Well, we had inherited Rochelle's dad's stamp collection. And I don't know anything about stamps, but I was, you know, get, got one of those books where you look up what they're worth. And I came to her and I said, I can't believe it. This stamp alone is worth $10,000. Now, when I went to the, the stamp collector guy, he said, and he put this microscope kind of thing, you know, he's looking at it. He says, oh, wow, it's too bad. Uh, this is the only stamp that's really worth anything. And you see this hole in the middle? I mean, it would really be worth a lot, but it's maybe worth a couple hundred, but the rest of them are dimes and nickels. <laughs> but anyway, I didn't know that then. But I was in the van, you know, choking someone because they were going to come get our stamps, <laughs> which tells you why the Lord has kept us in humble circumstances because he knows Jim would be a problem <laughs> if we did anything else. But that dream was unsettling. 
Because it made me wonder, is that inside of me? Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream and he is very unsettled by it. And by the way, there's an old Babylonian omen text, which this would be something that Nebuchadnezzar was familiar with. It says, if a man cannot remember the dream he saw, his God is angry with him. Nebuchadnezzar's spirit is troubled. It says, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Verse 3, king said, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. This sounds like growing panic from uncertainty and loss of control. I don't know what this means. What is going on? And his experts are sycophants. Neb suspects his experts are fawning parasites whose craft is chicanery and flim-flam. He says in verse 9, For you've agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. You're just going to tell me whatever you think I want to hear until I move on to something else. Implied, not happening, buddy. The bottom line is, he's thinking, there is something important that I can't seem to remember, let alone understand. But my mind keeps churning and I'm losing sleep over it. Have you ever experienced something like that? Where you're going, I am trying to make sense of what is going on here. I don't understand. Well, here's how Neb responded. He issued ultimatums impossible demands, threats, and he requires immediate action. He's actually going high maintenance. A, a typical does not know God response is this. If I am out of control, I'm going to assert my control by making this everyone else's problem, which is what he did. I know there's something that I, I can't put my finger on it and I know it matters and I am dying to know what's going on here. So he's going to make everyone else feel the pain. He's a leader who doesn't know what's going on and he's making everybody else feel the pain of it. Well, what about the soothsayers with no sooth? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar retained a full 24-7 staff of technical support. Basically, what this group did is they cataloged dreams and outcomes. Uh, and there were numerous documents among the Babylonians in which they would say, so when someone dreamed this, here's what happened. And when someone dreamed this, here's what happened. Oh, here's someone who dreamed this and this didn't happen, but this happened. And so they catalog all of that inf information. If they had a computer, I'm sure they could develop an algorithm for it. Because these books covered all manner of dreams and outcomes, they were quite long. And only an expert could work through them with some efficiency. You'd have to know where to look. Okay, where was that? He said this thing where it was cows and they're being eaten up by bigger cows. Okay, where's that in there? That was a different part of the country, but... By the way, sorcerers were included in the interpretive staff. Now, 2 Chronicles 33, 6 tells us that even in Israel there were sorcerers at one time. It says, but he, Manasseh, made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, that's our word, 
and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Now, this is clearly prohibited. According to Deuteronomy 18, 10, and 11, it says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. The group that Nebuchadnezzar is working with are relying on and clearly engaged in practices condemned by God. And they're breaking the first commandment. God alone. They're giving their allegiance to and relying on false gods. By the way, their inadequacy sets the stage for God through Daniel to unequivocally demonstrate he is the one true God because he's going to not just interpret a dream, he's going to tell you what the dream was. Well, here's their complaints. Complaint number one in verse 10. No great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. In other words, this is unprecedented. Furthermore, you're unreasonable. The thing which the king commands is difficult, and there's no one else who could declare it. You're asking us to do something that no one can do. It's the impossible. Further, it's theologically unsound. You're asking us to do something that only gods can do. Ooh, hint, hint. We also find your comments quite offensive. He said to them, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. He's actually calling their motives into question. So how do they respond? They protest the injustice of the situation. They mask their personal inadequacy by shmealing. Have I talked about shmealing before? It's a marriage technique. Uh, so uh, let's say the husband is coming home, and, uh, but he, he comes home late. And his wife says, I had dinner ready at 5.30. How come you weren't here? And the husband messed up. Now he's going to shmeal. He does this. He says, well, if you fix something that was worth eating, I would be here sooner. He just threw it back on her. Now, of course, she can counter shmeal, and she could say, I don't know. Well, if you made enough money for us to have something decent, I wouldn't have to serve you this stuff, you know, and then it can escalate and just keep going. So what they're doing is shmealing. They're basically saying, you told us something to do that's impossible. You've got a problem. And they're going into blame mode. So, so far, we've seen two different groups. How have they handled the crisis? A leader in a crisis who does not know the name of God, goes into high control mode, masking his anxiety and his inability by creating crises for others. You ever seen a leader do that? Doesn't know what he's doing. He's going to make everybody else feel the pain. The experts in the crisis who do not know the name of God, they blame others to diminish their accountability. You're at fault here. <laughs> We're not the problem. You're the problem. God's man has a plan. Daniel and his three friends were not aware of what was going on. Why? I don't know. They were attending classes. They're only in the second or third year of school. So I don't know why they were not looped in on what happened, but they weren't. 
And then it says, Daniel replied with discretion and discernment. What is that? Now, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2 of Daniel, he switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. And I'm going to give you your, I don't know if this is your first lesson, but uh, an elementary lesson in some uh, differences between Hebrew and Aramaic, all right? The word discernment in Aramaic is, and you have to listen closely, te'em. In Hebrew, the same word is ta'am. You see how it has the same consonants, but just a little bit different vocalization. So it says that Daniel replied with te'em. So I'm limited if I want to understand that word to just the places where that shows up in Aramaic, and there's very few. But if I look for ta'am, I can find a lot of passages that will help me understand this quality that apparently Daniel had and how he responded. So I'm going to show you two women. One woman has ta'am, the other does not, all right? Proverbs 11:22. as a ring of gold in a swine snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks ta'am. Absence of ta'am is like putting lipstick on a pig. Doesn't work good. But then listen to this. Here's an amazing woman. This is 1 Samuel 25, 32 and 33. It says, then David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of Israel and blessed be your ta'am, your discernment. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. In Abigail, it was this wonderful quality, and I'll tell you the basic meaning, which is taste for truth. Have a taste for truth. You have a desire for what is true, and that has helped me. In fact, the word, the core idea of ta'am is taste. For example, the passage that says, taste and see that the Lord is good, that's ta'am, or it's the verb form of it. Here's a great passage that will give you a sense of it. He says, teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in thy commandments. Teach me how to have a taste for truth and knowledge, for I believe in thy commandments. Daniel is truth-driven. He wants to understand the truth. That's the appetite that, refu- that fuels his response to the king. So what does he do? Three things. First, get the facts. He doesn't ask why. Why do you want us to do that? He says, why the hurry? Now, the soothsayers have said, this is impossible. He happens to know something, doesn't he? Impossible is not a part of God's vocabulary. So he doesn't say, this is impossible. He says, if you really want to know the answer, this will require a process. The dream readers labeled it as impossible. Daniel says, no, no, it's prayable. In fact, impossible equals prayable. Whenever we're dealing with an impossible situation, it may be impossible in the eyes of men, but not in the eyes of God, and it's perfectly prayable. I can ask the Lord. So Daniel's prayer of thanks actually reveals something, which is he recognizes that you couldn't ask for a better opportunity to show off his God. 
The soothsayers have already said, this can't happen. No way. So when God comes through in a no way situation, oh, it's obvious who God is. The smart guys have already said, this is a challenge that cannot be met without divine intervention. And Daniel says, you're right. Discretion, he's calm under pressure. He's thinking quickly. He's trusting God. And that's discretion-driven planning that is because he has a taste for the truth. Second thing he does is mobilize for prayer. It says, then Daniel went to his house, informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So he went to the dorm, I guess. They were in class too. They weren't aware. And told them about the matter so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. When he is addressed, Daniel and his three friends address him as the God of heaven. Now, that is a great name for God. Because the gods of the Babylonians, in some cases, were the gods of the heavens. And he says, we're going to talk to the God of heaven. In a place where astral worship is common. By the way, think about the names of Daniel and his three friends. So he's got a prayer group getting together. All right, who's, who's here at prayer group? Okay, God is my judge? Daniel. Yahweh has been gracious? Check. Who is like God? Mishael? Yep. God has helped Azariah. <laughs> I'd like to go to a prayer meeting with guys like that whose names are a reminder that God loves doing impossible things in situations where he gets demonstrated as the one true God. By the way, have you ever heard the expression, pray as if your life depends on it? That's real in this situation. In other words, if God doesn't answer this prayer, they will die. Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill them and everybody else who's in the, the wisdom craft. So his praying friends are a part of the solution. And by the way, that hasn't changed Steal today. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will fill your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We can do the same thing Daniel did. I don't know what the impossible situation is that you're facing. You know, as I've gotten reacquainted with you, I know that there are many in this room who are facing impossible situations. Get your group together and start praying to the God of heaven as if your life depends on it. Third thing he did is he put praise before protection. Remember what I read at the beginning of the sermon, Daniel 11:32, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. That's what Daniel was doing. And Daniel praises God for answering his prayer. 
And in his prayer, we hear the voice of one who knows his God. No wonder he was so strong under pressure. By saying he put praise before protection. I mean, think about this for a minute. If you don't tell the king what his dream was and then tell him the meaning of that dream, you're going to die. And we're not dilly-dallying around here. It's going to happen immediately. So let's say you prayed. And God told you the king's dream and told you what it meant. What's the first thing you would do? Hey, Arioch! <laughs> You'd go right to Arioch, right? It's not what he did. He stopped right then. And he praised the God who has no problem with the impossible. So in verses 19 through 24, it says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And it doesn't say, Then he ran to Arioch. It says, Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. How could Daniel make this audacious request? Just, uh, if you want to know the dream, not a problem, but we need to do a process, which in his mind he knew means get the group together and we're going to pray. Because he knows the wisdom and power belong to him. It's he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings, which, by the way, is a reference to what's coming in the message that we'll look at next week. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now, you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So Daniel then went into Arioch whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, he went and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. By answering their prayer, God has shown who he is. And there is no one, there is no God to compare to him. This is the heartbeat of prevailing saints. They know their God and ask God to hear their prayers to make himself known. You know, something that I remember, this is a long time ago here at First of Anne, was this maybe about 35 years ago when Dwayne Litfin was here and he said on Sunday evenings we're going to have sermons that relate to a book. And we all read a book together, The Pursuit of God by Tozer. Because the people who know their God, meaning they know who he is, what he has done, what he says, and live accordingly, are the difference makers. It matters profoundly that we know our God. I think this is so interesting. The psalmist says this, be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. In other words, he's saying, give us miracles. Why? That thy way may be known on the earth so that people will catch a glimpse of who you are and what you're like. That's why we pray for miracles. So that we can say, let me tell you what God does. Thy salvation among all the nations. 
So who are you going to be in a crisis? The one in charge, that's Neb, goes into high control mode, masking his anxiety and inability by creating crises for others. I'm in a crisis, so you're going to be in a crisis. The smart ones are the ones who blame others to diminish their personal accountability. I'm the expert here. You're the one who doesn't know what they're doing. The one who knows is God and who displays poise, strength, faith in a crisis depends on God. That's who Daniel was. That's who we can be. God's name, who he is, what he has done, what he has said is our strength. Proverbs 18.10 says this, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord, who he is, what he has done, what he has said, that's our strong tower. And I respond to life, everything that life's throwing at me through the lens of who he is, what he has done, and what he says. And that's what the person who prevails does. So what crisis are you facing? What are you dealing with right now? If you had a, not that there's a magic wand, but if you had a magic wand that you could wave over some situation and it would be profoundly changed, what, what would that be? What is the longing of your heart that you're saying, God, I am desperate for you to work on this front in the heart of this person, in this situation? What do you long for that only God can supply? Then let's pray as if our life depends on it and see what God does. And then we're going to make him known. Let's pray together. Father, you know the situations in this room. Just as you knew Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I don't. I don't know the dreams, the heartache of the people in this room. But you do perfectly. Their tears have been stored in a bottle. Their sorrows have been written down. But this we know that you are for us. And so we are coming before you boldly and we are laying before you a whole host of situations where we are desperate for you to work because we know you alone are the one who can change hearts, change situations, change outcomes. So we are pleading with you as the God who is the God of breakthrough, the God of compassion, the God of grace and the God of mercy to work in profound ways and for us to be able to come back next week and say, here's what God did. We're desperate for you to work because we ask these things in the name based on who he is, what he has done, and what he has said. The name of Jesus, amen.